there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you want to learn more about the coffee value chain and where you might fit into it, whether roasting, producing, or serving it up to customers in retail, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a consultant who works with roasters, retailers, and producers to help them all improve their marketing and sales programs. But before I introduce you to Tracy Allen, one of the original members of the U.S. Barista Championship Committee, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays with unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Tracy Allen, the founder and CEO of Brood Behavior, a consulting company he founded about a dozen years ago to offer comprehensive product quality and business support to all segments of the coffee industry. Brood Behavior primarily works with coffee roasters and producing countries to improve their marketing efforts and their sales programs. And their approach to coffee consulting involves changing behaviors through education and providing strategy and growth solutions at every touch point. Tracy actually grew up in a Midwest farming community and financed his own college education by working in retail management. After graduating from college, he was recruited by Procter & Gamble to take on a newly created position as beverage specialist. P&G put Tracy on the team responsible for developing the Folgers Coffee and Millstone brands. He went on to manage operations for a small Midwest specialty coffee roaster, which led him to co-found Zoka Coffee Roaster and Tea Company in Seattle, Washington, where Tracy launched and grew the company's wholesale division. As one of the original members of the U.S. Barista Championship Committee and the first chair of the Rules and Regulations Committee for the World Barista Championship, Tracy has trained multiple national and regional barista champions, and he served as a judge and a judge's trainer for the USBC and the WBC, which stands for the U.S. Barista Championship Committee and the World Barista Championship. He's also an SCAA Super Taster, which stands for the Specialty Coffee Association, thereabouts. <laughs> and he's a certified cupper and a Q grader instructor. We're going to get into what all that means. But first, Tracy, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am perfectly caffeinated and looking forward to talking about this in the next 30 minutes or so. Excellent. Oh my gosh, it's my pleasure. So I have to ask you, what are you drinking today? And do you prepare your own coffee? I gotta believe you do. I do. It's one of my guilty pleasures is to 
make my own cup of coffee in the morning and sit and just have a little time to myself while I plan the day or the week. But today it's a coffee from Colombia and the, the producers are La Palma y El Tucan. It's in Bucaramanga and it's they're doing a lot of high tech, if you will, studies on fermentation to try to make additional marketing opportunities for coffee. So they're doing some fermentation, a little like wine. This one's a bit like a malolactic. They just call it lactic acid fermentation. So it's like coffee would have chocolate notes and a little bit of citric acid, but it tastes a little bit softer on the edges. And you would think like a Chardonnay or something that it's got some, uh, yeah, a little malolactic to it. So it kind of rounds off the edges. I think people that add milk to their coffee love this, I'm sure. So it's kind of fun. Yeah. In these days where we don't get to travel, this is how I do it. Cup by cup. (laughs) Oh, I love that. You know, I interviewed a gentleman who is the head winemaker at the Golan Heights Winery in Israel. And he was telling me in our Time for Coffee interview that one of the amazing things about growing grapes and producing wine is that it's like getting on a plane and traveling to that country when you enjoy that product because you can taste where it's grown. You can taste the soil and the environment and it's just so unique to that place. Is it the same with coffee? It is. It's funny you mentioned the introduction about being a super taster and and it's really anyone that scores a 90 and above on the sensory evaluation. But then I've done it three times and usually people are, I think 3% of the population has the ability to do it once. And mostly women, by the way, they tend to have more taste tenules on their tongue. Their ability is a little heightened. So a lot of times people like to put me on uh, show pony mode, like when we're out to dinner and things like that. And they'll say, where's this coffee from? Where's this coffee from? And to be honest with you, that's the giveaway. What you just said is like, you can tell a lot about the terroir from things like the body and the acidity, like, oh, this is definitely a Colombian. So the analogy that you made with the winemaker is good to hear. It's not a surprise, but it's also good to hear because it's a lot of times the terroir will give away the cup. And then in our industry, in my business in particular, sometimes I'll have to deconstruct a blend because a client's trying to match it. So, yeah, there's the science to what he just said right there is, you know, you know, the body comes from this place. You know, the acidity comes from here. And these flavor notes come from here. And all of a sudden you're like, hey, mentally, this is where I'm at. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit, as you were talking, Tracy, of that commercial. Was it Juan Valdez? There was some commercial for some not specialty coffee, coffee, (laughs) Colombian coffee. But I think that, wasn't it about like, take me away or you were going to that country? Yeah, that's right. That's been a very successful campaign, too. I think there's some debate about the most recognizable brand in the world, but Juan Valdez is up there. Mm. So I was thinking maybe we should start out our caffeinated chat here today talking about the coffee value chain. How many links are there in it in terms of producer to cup? When we started this, like you said, a dozen years ago, there were about nine links in the value chain from the time that the farmer picks the coffee and hands it off till you get it in your cup. And there can be more because it's dependent on how the country's governed. And most of the producing countries have a national association of coffee. That's just part of their how their politics work. And their idea is really to empower the farmer to produce 
more quantity. And then if there's a quality component, that's a bonus, but also how coffee's bought and sold. And so unfortunately there are things that we just typically, and with the stroke of a pen call corruption, but let's just say there some countries are softer on how coffee is traded than others. But as a rule, it's somewhere between seven and nine links in the value chain. But so the producer will pick his coffee and then in our interest, for it to be high quality coffee, like specialty, we like to see them get it to what they call a washing station within 20 hours, which is not always easy based on logistics. You know, it could be in Indonesia or someplace like that where it has to be on a boat and then a truck or whatever to get where it gets washed. But once you pick that coffee, the clock starts ticking. So the washing station, if they're gonna wash it or just a sorting station or a drying station. In East Africa, there's not as many washing stations. So things like processing, let's just call it processing in general, could have a couple different touch points in it. So that's from the time the copper producer picks it, they could go through honey processing or natural processing, semi-wash, washed, all those kinds of things, which will decide how many actual links there are there. So there's a little flexibility, but it could be four or five links just in that part alone before it's even in the bag. And to be honest with you, lower quality coffee doesn't even go into the actual bag that we're thinking of. It goes into a super sack that's just like a great big grocery bag that fits on a pallet and it has handles on it and they pick it up with a forklift or they move it on the pallet. So that's kind of the first half, let's call it, the touch points. And from there, it will go to a warehouse for an exporter, most likely. An exporter will have coffees that they'll offer to importers. So between that exporter, you've just added another link. You have to have logistics, which means like a shipping company is somebody like Maersk or someone like that to actually ship. And then the receiving end will have the importer. So now we're up to around eight. <laughs> we could be eight links right there. Depends. The roaster would buy it and then the customer obviously would get it from the retailer. So the processing itself, we've narrowed down a lot on the front end from, like I say, when we started it, because it was a lot more. There's usually more association with one or two types of processing at origin. So that takes you down from four or five links to two or three links. So that's where you cut that down to nine. Unfortunately, or fortunately, it's not always the quickest. And I think one of the things is that a specialty program will have a timeline for how that works. And what we like to do is make sure that everyone meets the timeline. But there's pieces in that production piece that are things like we call them coyotes, for instance, in Honduras. There are people that just go door to door. And instead of the farmer having to go through all those links, they'll offer them not pennies, but let's say dimes or even 50 cents maybe on a dollar and take the coffee right then. And then the farmer doesn't have to leave his house, doesn't have to make the trek, doesn't have to go through all those processes and worry about selling their coffee, but they get really taken advantage of price-wise. Like I say, not every country allows that. So in that case, the farmer goes through one. We don't want that either. So having educated staff at the washing mills and things like that are very important. So we help them find places that are authentic to take their coffee, to process it, and then they take possession of it back and then they sell it to the buyers that we would introduce them to. So we narrowed it down to about three links before the shipping, which is about five or six all in. Mm, okay. Lots of math in there because it's 50 countries. You know, if we were talking country by country, I could get more specific. But needless to say, we're cut it in half and sometimes in thirds. So you said there are 50 coffee producing countries in the world? Actively. Uh-huh. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. So interesting that the United States is not one of them. They are. Oh, they are. So, Where yeah, do we so grow we do coffee? Hawaii. And now. Oh, yeah, then, of course, um, Hawaii. Yeah. The Baja of California, they're having some. 
about three years out now. They've been producing coffee, not really at scale, but it looks like it's coming on. Okay, great. Well, how big is the specialty coffee industry here in the U.S.? And perhaps we should define that for us. What's the opposite of a specialty industry? Is it the Kirkland mega containers <laughs> of like Supremo or whatever the generic yeah. coffee is, the Colombian? And are Starbucks and Pete's considered specialty? So to answer your question, Starbucks and Pete's, Starbucks is obviously independent. Pete's is a JB company now. And, and JB is a company that's from Europe and they're buying a lot of smaller coffee companies to put them together to compete with Starbucks. So the whole nexus of why specialty was we wanted to create about 30 years ago a group of people got together and wanted to create a benchmarking system for what's good coffee and what's bad coffee because there was such a bias in the question right and so we needed to create a set of measurables which has been a work in progress now for about 30 years and how to score it and what characteristics to score it on and all those things that come into play. But if you ask someone on the street, what especially coffee, they're going to say, oh, you know, it scores 80 and above. That's a basic answer. But it's really about social and economic, environmental, all those kinds of impacts, not just the score, but really, you know, what you're doing to support the farmer. And is there transparency? The answer to the second part of your question is, I don't know that Starbucks uses that benchmarking system to make their buying decisions, but they do a lot of good at Origin. And I, I feel the same way about Pete's too. I'm not sure that they're, I've seen them in industry events. And so I don't know day to day inside how much they're doing there. A lot of those roast profiles are based on the fact that they can't really create those single origin, small lots, micro lots, nano lots, the things that we do where you literally look at a picture of the farmer while you're drinking his coffee. It's because of scale. And so that their consistency often comes from how they roast and roasting consistently to meet their target demographic and how they feel best represents their brand. But they're members. I'll say this. They are members of the specialty coffee organization. They don't really police, you know, the membership and say that everyone does X, Y and Z. So they've got audited and they are specialty coffee providers. It's just kind of hard to tell, but they do pay. And they do take on information and they do, I think, the best that they can at scale in the U.S. right now, especially is about a $48 billion industry. And, you know, it's growing like crazy. Like I mentioned earlier, over 30 percent of consumers are 18 and above. So they're starting younger. They're starting closer to 15 now. It looks like the push is coming on and the 15s are drinking cold coffee. So the specialty industry is just almost, I don't want to say infancy, even though we've been around for 30 years, but it's an exciting time in there. And, and it's it's not going anywhere anytime soon. It's really taken on the soft drinks and the energy drinks and all those things quite well. Amazing. So what other trends are happening? Is it primarily around the cold brew that is taken off right now? Are there other trends that are maybe just starting in certain mm -hmm. parts of this country or other parts of the world in Europe or Africa or Latin America? As you mentioned, cold is the future. And, I, you know, for people that have been in a long time like myself, it's like, oh, gosh, there's a lot of people that are going to scoff at that. But also how you grow, select, roast, prepare, manage the acidity, manage the body, all those kinds of things with cold really gives a whole nother 
element to the industry. So it's nothing but upside for coffee. So I'm excited about it personally. And I think direct to consumer has had a huge growth even before the coronavirus has caused us to, to shelter in place. We knew statistically that for the sort of commodity grade commercial branded coffee, people will buy that at the grocery store. And coincidentally, they're still buying a lot of pre-ground coffee. But the people that make the investment in the grinder are more likely to do the direct ship to their homes. And the subscription services are up double digits from five years ago. There's a huge growth in having coffee shipped to your home weekly. So those are exciting times. And then there's a lot of, because of the cold growth, there's a lot of sort of intrinsic growth around coffee and in a way that's like, we used to strip the fruit, you know, the red part, when you see the pictures of coffee being harvested, they yeah. would strip that because you actually roast the seed and then that would get put into a big pile and they would use it for things like, sometimes it would put it back on the young plants and those things just to use it for nitrogen. But a lot of times it just washed down the hills and coffee the harvests are always in the mountains, obviously, at altitude and end up in the water source. And it's really hard on the water because of the alkalinity and, and the acidity. And so now they're extracting the oils from the remaining fruit and creating a tea. So they call it anytime you see something called cascara, that's the fruit of the cherry. Hey. Now they're making drinks. Yeah. And uh, next time you're in a coffee shop, watch for that because they're doing things like it looks like a cranberry and it tastes a little bit like a cranberry, to be honest. And then they'll add stuff to it, like some type of sweetener or whatever. But they're getting really creative with the build. And another thing that the young people are telling us is they care about the build, the drink build. They want to have, you know, just like you and I were talking earlier about how people like convenience. Young people like creativity. They want to have, you know, two shots of this and one shot of this and a pump of this and whatever. <laughs> but not Everybody wants it to be just coffee. And so the teas and tisanes and those things you're seeing, I call them carbonated botanical beverages because everyone seems to like the texture of nitro or CO2 in their drink and then whatever the extract is. So that's another one that's going to be beneficial to the coffee industry, but not necessarily exactly coffee, but it will be categorized as so. Very cool. You wrote a blog post. I think it was back in March. It was early on in the coronavirus, looking mm -hmm. at how the coronavirus had so far affected the coffee industry. And I'm just going to pull a short section from your post, Tracy, to read here. You wrote, what does all this mean to you, the coffee roaster and or retailer? Not the penny pinching you might expect. In this economic climate, people are seeking small rewards for themselves at a great value. And in a market that's becoming fairly educated about great coffee, they will be willing to spend more on your product than a $1.75 espresso from a major chain. What mm -hmm. does that mean, Tracy? For our young listeners who may want to get into this industry and are looking at all these other industries that are kind of pulling back the offers, the job offers, does that mm -hmm. mean that they should be thinking about moving into the coffee industry? It sure is optimistic, isn't it? I think what I was saying there was really in my lifetime, what I had to compare the value of a cup of coffee two was post 9-11. That's the only thing really that came to mind while I was writing that. And I remember we would tell people that, you know, keep up the hope. This is when I was heavily involved in the 
politics, especially coffee. And the idea was that the members wanted hope. And one of the things that we told people is don't give up on this because and the producers, too, because producers will walk away from their harvest and grow alternative crops. And so we coined coffee as the last affordable luxury, which is a very economics <laughs> major minded slogan, I guess. Yeah. That was the only real getaway that you had and you weren't sure, like now, we're not sure when we're going to get an actual getaway. And so you bring that to people and let them start their day with that getaway. And like you and I were talking about what's in my cup today. And I think, you know, when I'm drinking that coffee, I think about the people that I know that produced it and what the trip's like, and what the food's like and what the landscape's like. And it's just the little sort of vacation every day before I start my day. And that's what I had in mind there. But what it means for young people is, and this is where the business piece really comes to play. It's a very fair industry and it should be, if you're doing it right, a very transparent industry. So by saying that, I mean that you can make a fair profit and still have a clear conscience because there's room to operate successfully and not exploit the work of the people that make the product. And no one's going to fight with you over even a dollar a pound because they care about the quality and they care about that escape. You know, think about the money that we do spend when we're traveling. So all of a sudden, like a 12 ounce bag of retail espresso, a good one is probably somewhere between 10 and $14 for 12 ounces. But that math's not so bad if you break it down over how many shots of espresso you get out of it. Let's go to a pound and say that it's 32 shots. So that's a month worth of espresso if you were to stretch it out. And every day, you know, you have that little mental vacation. So for someone that's business savvy and can build a model that brings value and don't build it on just price, don't worry about the price, because if you build it on value, the price will take care of itself. And the worst mistake you can make is leaving money on the table because you're underestimating the value of your product and what you offer from a business model. You know, it's that unique value proposition that marketing people talk about all the time. It has to truly be unique because you and I both know as consumers, we don't really like to be sold, but we do like to buy. When we find something we want, we like to buy. So all you got to do is give us a reason to want to buy it and know like they're going to back this up. These guys go to origin. They meet with the farmers. They're not just buying things off a computer screen. They roast their own. They have a QC lab. They do all these things. And you're like, these guys are authentic. They put the work in. So I don't mind paying that extra dollar. So what does that mean in terms of job opportunities and specifically for those listeners who may want to get a job as a barista or a store manager? Mm -hmm or as a roaster, or at least in a roastery. Yeah. Coincidentally, there are a lot more startup business people in our industry than there are, I mean, categorically, than there are just basic job openings other than ground level. So to be a roaster, you're going to have to intern somewhere. And over time, it's going to take probably a couple of years before you get to run the roaster yourself. You know, there's sort of a hierarchy and those kinds of things. But I'll go back to my original statement. If you want to get in and get a look at it quickly, take an opportunity to be a barista, even if you're working another job or going to school or whatever it is, and just do it part time. And you're going to find out how many different avenues there are actually in coffee that you wouldn't otherwise know. It's going to give you sort of a look behind the curtain and help you make those kinds of decisions. Fascinating statistic that more people now are starting their own business in the coffee industry. That's pretty fascinating. 
I mean, if you think about, oh, how can that be possible? Because there's so many coffee roasters and there's only so many jobs in those. But at the same time, you know, we're back to one of those times and places in time in life where people are going, I'm done with this. I'm done working for corporate. I'm done whatever. And if I can put the money together and sometimes it's a simple shoestring, <laughs> it's not the best looking business model. But if they get in there and they work hard and I'm I mean, I've seen some pretty creative financing, like two different credit cards from <laughs> that <laughs> kind of stuff because they just love it and they want to do it so bad that that's another piece of it. So, I mean, do a situation analysis of your local market and see who's there and who you might want to work for and what the opportunities are, if it's going to be geographic convenience, right? I mean, to start with sure. before you make any other investment. So look around you. And I'll be honest, we like to consider ourselves Switzerland and we we're always going to, if someone ever emails just info at brewbehavior.com and they have a question about that, like, Hey, is there anyone in my area that, that I might talk to? We're, we're going to name off at least a handful of places they can go. I'm always happy to facilitate someone if their dream is to be in coffee. And that's an open invitation. And then Spredge, you know, the Spredge website will tell them and you'll see on Spredge a lot more basic or entry level positions or else they come with experience. And sometimes that's because you will serve a couple of years doing one particular job. And then there's a little bit of a land lock on turnover. And, and it's just someone saying, hey, I've been the apprentice roaster long enough. I want to be the head roaster. So I'm going to go look because it doesn't look like that's going to open up for me right now. But I got to be honest, a lot of people in this industry do it for a while and then they want to do it on their own, which I think is super exciting if it's done well. Yeah. Taking all the information they can on someone else's dime and put in a solid day's work for it until you figure out what it is you want to do and and then which one of these coffee avenues you want to go down. Great advice. And by the way, Sprudge, for those of you who may not know what it is, is an online publication that is sort of like one-stop shop news happening in the coffee industry. Is that a good way of describing it? I'd say you're spot on. Okay. And I was supposed to be interviewing one of the co-founders of Sprudge today, <laughs> coincidentally, but he had to reschedule. So my hope is at some point in the not too distant future, you'll be able to hear more about how Sprudge came to be and what the heck Sprudge means. Makes me wonder if there's not some breaking news we don't know about because it's yeah. there's some, maybe there's something why we speak. <laughs> <laughs> So let's pivot now, Tracy, to talk about what you are doing now as the founder and CEO of Brood Behavior. Mm -hmm. You've got a whole range of clients. Could you give us a sense of who they are just by category and what you do for them? Sure. The ones that I can tell you about, I will, and the rest I'll generalize. But primarily, when I put this together, I had the time was right to exit Zoka and and I wanted to do something that brings the farmer closer to the end user. That's really always the thing that, that bothered me. So the whole idea was to just connect coffee producers with coffee buyers and eliminate all the barriers to entry to do that. And so, as you mentioned, the value chain was under attack from that point on. <laughs> it wasn't a one size fits all. Like I said, there's 50 countries in the, and there's really 50 different answers to how that value chain works. So we had to really carve it up whiteboard by whiteboard. And all the other things that we do, everything else that we do is just to bring bring us back to that mission. So we have a complete campus in Kansas City and we 
train roasters and we train cuppers and we train business people. We teach them the finance. We have the only cold coffee brewing school in North America that I know of, or at least last I knew of. All those kinds of things that educate. And then we work on strategy a lot of times on like, okay, now that I know all this stuff, how do I take it to market? And then my personal piece of this is a lot of times working with the government in the producing countries to allow our scope of work to be executed. And then because of my qualifications as a coffee taster, I design a lot of intellectual property for larger clients like Chick-fil-A. I created Chick-fil-A's coffee and American Airlines. Anyway, those are some of the larger ones. Some of those chefs that you see on Netflix are friends and they, they have me do work for them as well. But the idea was the company was created for the small roaster to have a unique value proposition that will help them compete with the brands. So making a solid business model for them, helping them grow, watching them grow, teach them the ways on the road and things like that. I think I spent a lot of time with business piece of it. And then as I started to stay with the tasting piece, I don't know, probably people that hear this will associate with me with a news story a couple of years ago when the Pope visited the U.S. I got commissioned to create a profile for his visit, which was kind of fun because he's a foodie and we got to take some risk with the profile and then he enjoyed it and they actually wanted more coffee. <laughs> there were 60 pounds of the whole project, but what there was no more once it was gone. So but, you um, created coffee for the Pope? I did. Yeah. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. It's, uh, I reinforced with that member I uh, mentioned earlier, let the experts do what they do. When the media got a hold of that information, because there is a, a news station adjacent to our corporate office and they come get coffee and since there wasn't an NDA on it, they just let it out as a little local news story. And then the next thing I got world news and people like that wanted me to fly to New York to talk about it. And we literally almost missed the third shipment of the coffee because we got so tied up in our showboatness, if you will, of that <laughs> project. I would never tell that again. But anyway, that was super cool to say. But, but I mean, really understanding target demographics and creating a profile to fit that demographic is a strength that I've had that it served a, a great value to this company because if I got the opportunity to do that for every consumer in the world, we wouldn't have any trouble with coffee pricing or production or anything else. You know, that would be a dream, right? Where if people said, I don't like coffee. Well, a lot of times it's just because you've only tried that one old coffee that was like your mother's or grandmother's or whatever. And of course you don't like it, but it's like anything else over time, you begin to think, well, that's coffee and other people drink it. So I'm going to drink it. And then when you find out you can actually have a profile that you love to drink based on your target demographic, like who you are and what your walk of life is and things like that. So some a little bit of intelligent design goes into it. And then people are like, oh my gosh, I didn't know coffee could taste like this. I love the light bulb moment. But that's a lot of what I do right there is just creating and managing those pieces of IP as we have to call them in the business world and making sure they stay consistent. And if there's a problem politically in one country, we've got to be able to attract and keep the profile the same, but source it from another country or something like that. That takes up a lot of my time. But mm. custom designing the, the business piece is a lot of what I do. And, and I'm too old and not cool enough to train baristas anymore. So I let the younger people do that and they do a great job. And I do teach some of the roasting courses still just because I feel like the application, the heat theory and the physics are things that will cause people to gloss over on and, and I want to make it touchable for them so it's not so intimidating. So I haven't really handed all that off yet, but I stay busy. The green, every year that there's a harvest, the green coffee, usually I go to origin and create those 
profiles green so that we can make the roast profiles for those bigger clients. And this year we haven't been able to do that. So there's a lot of shipping green to our lab and doing the design there, which is problematic because shipping has been slower the last four months and things are a little bit off target. But at the end of the day, I serve the producer and the client and we make it work. It's just longer days and longer weeks. Oh my goodness. So that's actually a really important point that the coffee at origin in one of these 50 countries around the world where it's grown is shipped if it isn't roasted in that country. And Mm -hmm. more often than not, it's roasted in the US, in Canada or Europe. Is that right? Correct. So it's shipped green. And some uh-huh. of the processing that we were talking about, I think it was in the espresso shots interview, mm-hmm. whether yeah. it's a honey yeah. process or if it's a dry or wet, is that accurate? Yeah, it's natural process, natural. which is really natural. Mean out there drying, or if they use water, correct. Mm-hmm. Okay, water processing, yes. So that mm-hmm. is done in origin and then it's shipped green to one of those other locations where the roasteries are located. And then it's so interesting that you mentioned the physics in the roasting because I actually went to Barrington Roastery in Uh Great Barrington, Massachusetts. I don't know if you're familiar with them. And I took a cupping class and I was Uh the only student. No one else signed up. And, you know, I loved getting to chat. I had both of the roasters there, lovely, lovely men. And one of them had been a physics major in college. And I was like, what? You studied physics? And that actually (laughs) makes sense then to have that training without knowing it, right? He was studying something that was relevant to coffee roasting. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I think sometimes I try to explain it in a way that I intentionally leave that out because, you know, people sometimes will trigger and they'll shut down and go, oh, physics, I can't do physics. And then when they're in the middle of the lesson, they're like, wow, this is interesting. And I go, are you getting it? And they're like, sure, I'm getting it. I'm like, it's physics. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Super cool. So what is it about coffee, Tracy, that turned it from something that you enjoyed to drink into an Mm -hmm. all-encompassing professional passion for you. You know what I think? I go all the way back to original coffee houses like Lloyd's, and it was one of those gathering places, the other place where people could go and socialize. And it wasn't polarizing in the way that liquor establishments were. And I think it remains, for lack of a better term, a social lubricant for us where people will get together and meet for coffee instead of dinner takes a long time and not everybody wants to be out at night for drinks and all those kinds of things. I think coffee is just a very wholesome way to socialize. And I think a lot of it's just been, well, you know, we'll get coffee and we'll talk. And now I hear conversations that are fun because they're like, hey, let's go there. They have better coffee. What do you mean better? Well, I'll show you when we get there. And then, you know, just because someone like the guys at Barrington spend a little time with you, you want to show your friends what you know about it. Or, or we do this wine, too, and we do it with everything else. But like, hey, let's go to this place because they have these particular copies and I know something about them. And, and a little bit to our own fault in the industry, we've always been a little bit like not wanting to show our cards. You know, there's been sort of cartoons and jokes about baristas not being the most engaging about what they know, which is a deterrent because the more you share, right, the more you grow. 
And now I see the value of these mom and pops coming into town that were only served by corporate coffee and flourishing because they got some time spent with them by that mom and pop store or whatever the case was like you did. And they bring their friends. You know, everyone think consumer studies say that if you upset someone, they'll tell 10 people. But if you make them happy, they'll tell another one. And they just day by day bring people in and say, this is better coffee and it scores this much. And this is Ethiopian. It tastes like blueberries. It used to be just a cup of brown water where people would get together and it was a safe place to meet up. So there's my theory. Long version, but there's my theory. Mm. So let's flash back to when you were in college. You went to the University of Missouri and you graduated with a BA in economics. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree, Tracy, when you graduated? So that was the University of Missouri in Kansas City. That was one of their whole system. But I was delayed entry, if you will. I went to junior college first. And by the time I got to Proctor, I knew I was going to be working with them when I got out. So I was lucky that way. So were you doing an internship? During the summer or they, something while you were in school? No, they had a career day. You remember those career days where those recruiters would come to campus? Sure, they still happen. Or at least yeah, they, they had that. They did before the coronavirus. I guess virtually, yeah, right. So some friends of mine were like, hey, well, let me back up. I was roasting coffee that I found in a seed catalog in a popcorn popper like a lot of people my age in our industry. And I thought I had drank coffee with my grandmother and my grandfather just because I thought it was cool, I guess. I don't know. And seemed like it didn't have to taste good. It just had to you know, look cool or whatever. That's probably how a lot of other bad habits started. But I think the seed catalog, it wasn't any better coffee, but I can make it brown. And remember those little popcorn poppers you buy oh, for sure. home? That, yeah. So I was doing that. And my friend said, hey, Procter Gamble's down there at the job fair. And you should go see him because I told him that you roast coffee. <laughs> And I was like, yeah, right. I bet they laugh in your face. He's he's like, no, they said, come see him. So apparently to Proctor, I knew more about coffee than some of the people they were interviewing. And after a very lengthy hiring process, I mean, like over a year before I was actually onboarded, I ended up working for him. But they were the H. I still know the HR lady. And she's she's like, you know, we take our time hiring people. But they had a part time job that was beverage specialist. And that's really all you did was did demos for Folgers and Millstone. At the, oh, at the time, it was just Folgers. All you had to do was set up demos to go demo Folgers. And so I did that. Was that like in grocery stores? Yeah. Or mine started with office coffee. So they would give you a list of office coffee companies, you know, the places that will deliver to your office and give you the brewer and bring you the sugar and the stir sticks and all that kind of stuff. And then it got into the Cisco's of the world and Canteen and those bigger ones. But I mean, my close rate was pretty good. So I was rewarded for it. And I got to move around within the company and become more permanent. I learned so much from that so much. But it's interesting how, like I said earlier, it's a whole different business now. So a lot of that baseline stuff that I learned, I always compare it to like the Betty Crocker cookbook. I think that's the red and white one that's like the standard. And I still give it to young people when they get married. But I'm like, if you can cook out of this, you can build from there. And yeah, and I still give it to people when they get married. But I learned the baseline of everything I know from that experience. And they took forever to get. In fact, I took a job working for Coca-Cola in the intern. But once I got out, of, I mean, I always knew I was going to end up at Procter. She assured me that I was coming unless I had like something in my background check or something like that, that they just moved slow and then they hired you for a lifetime, which was interesting because it came back on me when I left and you're like, you're leaving? No one leaves. What are you doing? (laughs) So wait, let me just rewind for a moment just to clarify things. So Mm -hmm. 
What year were you at the University of Missouri when you went to that job fair? Senior. So you were a senior in college. I'm guessing it was in the fall or the spring. Yeah. Okay. And Mm -hmm. you went and it took until the next fall for you to go to work full time for Mm P&G. But in the interim, you had a part time job with them and with Coca-Cola. No, I was full time with Coca-Cola. Okay. (laughs) Full time with Coca-Cola. But then you left. Proctor. How about that? Okay. (laughs) All right. Got it. And then. When you got to Procter and Gamble, you were really trained as a coffee specialist when it came to the coffee that they produced or that they sold, which was Folgers. Yeah, and honestly, we haven't mentioned this yet, but I grew up in a rural town outside of Kansas City, and we, until a few years ago, had a Folgers plant there. So there was a lot of benefit to working for them there instead of being somewhere out in the field. You know, you could take big clients and let them tour the actual roastery. You could go to the plant and get in on cupping. So I just bugged them all the time until I don't know if I won them over or just warmed down, but finally they're like, okay, okay, you're part of the team. Yeah. So how long were you at P&G before you left? And was it after that that you went to co-found Zoka? So there was a startup specialty roaster in Kansas City that we would often find ourselves in the same lobby to go pitch. And the founder of that company was tied up in the SEA as well. And I mean, the Specialty Coffee Association. Right. So he became the president of the Specialty Coffee Association and really needed someone to watch his business. And we became friends. And he said, Hey, I want you to come run my company. And I had just sold coffee, but I had some retail management experience. And I think that was enough for him. It was more of a look in the eye, shake the hand, sort of trust thing. And so he could go do the specialty coffee career. Like I said, that's a four-year commitment. So I was at Procter for, oh my gosh, I should know this, right? I'd say four years probably, and then went to run that company in Kansas City for a couple years. And it was really a great exposure to the difference between commodity grade and specialty. That was a great segue which helped me make the decision to go to Seattle. And that decision to leave Kansas City, go to Seattle, was the one that really defined my career from there on out. And then you co-founded Zoka, which is still in Seattle. It's actually got a number of locations. I went on the website there, and I know you, you don't own it anymore. I guess you and your partner sold it. He's still there. He still owns it. And the way I understand, he brought some partners in and Man, he's been at it for a long time, but I think they're still doing well. And you did well when you sold your share. Oh, my God. Our timing was so good. Honestly, we looked so intelligent, and it was really just good timing and hard work. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. I can take credit for the vision all day long, but to be honest, timing is so important. And hard work and to have a goal is one thing, but to stand around and talk about it versus getting it done is really what's going to set you apart. And that was a labor of love and we don't even count we don't measure the amount of hours but more importantly like the quality of the hours right and so it was just like being a farmer again honestly but it the reward was tenfold so i just have two final questions for you tracy and i try to ask all my guests these questions and the first one is if you could share a time in your professional life when you struggled Maybe mm-hmm. you even failed in a job you had or at least screwed up and thought you were going to get fired or whatever it was. 
But the most important point here is to show our young listeners that even people who have a lot of success in their professional lives, you know, they fall down at times and they still get through the other side. So the most important thing here is how you persevered and if there was a lesson that you learned in the process. In the essence of time, I'm going to give you a quick anecdotal one that'll make you laugh. And then I'm going to tell you the the real heart story of your question. And the first one is Coca-Cola eventually figured out what I was doing and they called me into the office to talk about it. And I referred to Coke as sugar water. So they fired me. (laughs) That, That was a defining moment. And then on a serious note, you know, coffee's at a about a 16 year low right now. You know, the pricing in my life's work has been to get a fair price for what they do. And as you mentioned earlier, so many people feel like it should cost more. And But what that causes, without getting into all the economics of how that happened, because that's a whole other story, is there are contracts for containers of coffee, even for my own clients that have agreements with me, that their business is off so substantially, some of them 60, 70, 80 percent, that they will default on the contracts, which means that the farmer has coffee sitting in there and they're not going to get paid for it and they didn't sell it to someone else because they thought it was paid for. And now the legal system may or may not take care of that, but my first thought is how I've let the producers down and that could be devastating to them. And so my last four months has been on the phone, on Skype, on Zoom, whatever, trying to place those defaulted on containers in new homes and not take a major financial loss for the producer. So it's significant amount of coffee containers. I took it very personal, but I mean, how did we know that we're coming in this, right? And, but at the same time, the client also, what are they going to do when they, you know, when they can't serve the amount of customers that they're used to serving? And it's just one thing after another. But at the same time, we're, I'd say we're just by being proactive, we're probably 75% there. They're rehoming those containers of coffee. But man, I got to tell you, that's not something I want to do again in my lifetime. It's been very tough, very, very tough. But those are my relationships. And transactionally, they would say he doesn't owe that to us, but it's emotional. You know, it's more than transactional. And it's like, hey, we have about 30 years of relationships with some of those people. And I'm not going to go down there with my head down and not be able to look them in the eye. So we're getting it done. But it's right now, actually, to answer your question. Wow. And is there a lesson that you've learned in this process? I would say that someone smarter than me could figure out some type of insurance for that happening. But since we have not had this before, even after 9-11, I mentioned earlier, we didn't have it to this degree, the default on contracts. And what that causes, it's also a chain reaction because the farmers immediately are upset and they want to go tear out their coffee trees and plant things that are other sources of income. Yeah, other cash crops. Yeah, and they're not always... A positive either. So you feel like that's a heavy burden, you know, like that they're just going to walk away from coffee and, and not only that, but then if you don't catch it, it's already done. And then it would take them another eight years to get back into coffee once you talk them back into it. So the communication has been daily. And then you know where the hotspots are, who the people are that are hedging on giving up because they just have no hope because they don't get all the information down there that we get. So they depend on us for it. And that's been just keeping people's spirits up. And I think we're doing that for each other in this country as well. But imagine doing it for people have very little access to technology going, we don't have any money and our coffee's still sitting at the port and 
we don't know how to do what we need to do. Yeah. yeah. It's been rough. Oh, boy. Well, I'm so sorry to hear that. Final question. If you could go back to college, back to the University of Missouri and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? <laughs> That's funny. I think a lot of people think he's got a great job. Why would he do anything different? But I think a lot of what we find out is by trial and error, and it takes a lot of errors. And I think now knowing what I the thrust of our business is to help people get where they want to be faster and with less errors. So I think if you knew what you were going to do with it when you did go to college, you could have been way more specific in, in what you did and didn't do. Like you and I were speaking earlier, sometimes it's helpful to not jump from that undergrad to that grad degree because you need to go get that real life experience. So I wish if I had had more real life experience, I probably could have been more efficient and got where I'm at quicker. But I wouldn't trade the journey. I mean, mine in particular, I would just say now people know that that's an option. They can be more articulate about what they choose to do and not do. But I don't think based on what I had to work with, I could have done anything different then. But I do now. I would definitely have paid more attention to the international piece and the market and how international finance works, things like that. You know, just a lot of what I learned was very U.S. focused even in economic school. And then I think I would have probably spent more time looking outside the dates, those kinds of things, because it's very little. What I do is here. I mean, it's based here, but everything gets touched outside the country. It's all global. The world is flat. <laughs> so small these days, isn't it? Well, Tracy, I want to thank you so much for the incredible insights that you've had to share about this really extraordinary industry. There is so much to it, so much to it. And if you love coffee and you love people and you're interested in the world, my goodness, probably very few jobs that can be as fulfilling and kind of touch your heart in the way that this one will and clearly does with you, Tracy. Thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor and, and I've enjoyed spending the morning with you. And don't be a stranger. If you have questions, we're always happy to empower people with accurate information. It's out there. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.